The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 5. I thank you, Lord, for this time and your word. It's sweet and beautiful and rich. And we thank you, God, for your miraculous provision and protection, how you surround us with a community. We're thankful for our faith family, that the people on our right and our left there aren't just fellow parishioners, but they're brothers and sisters in this battle that we call life, that we can link up with and do battle alongside of, and we can war in the spirit together. And we thank you that you're a God who breaks walls and brings down strongholds and breaks chains and releases captives. And we pray that you would do that work tonight, Jesus. We also want to remember your people in Israel as they are living in fear. And there's so much going on over there, Lord, as tensions are rising and things are reaching a fevered pitch. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem as you instructed us to pray. We pray for the Prince of Peace to come back from heaven. Lord, we pray for peace in our own land and in our own hearts. And we pray for your word to pierce like an arrow tonight and to hit its mark in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of my message for you this evening is Don't Miss Your Miracle. Don't miss your miracle. So the man at the center of our story tonight had been suffering from a certain condition for such a long time that he had given up all hope that things could ever change for him. And then one day, Jesus walked right up to him and changed his whole life. But the thing I want you to notice as we get started is his miracle was almost blocked. It almost didn't happen. Why? Because the guy kept getting in the way of the work that God wanted to do in his life. You know how it is. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? We can get in our own way. We can put our foot in our mouth. And I, I just have to start by saying this. You might actually be standing in the way of the miracle that God wants to do in you and through you. And so my advice, my exhortation, and my encouragement to all of us, myself included tonight, is that we would just get out of the way so that God can do what he wants to do. Amen? Amen. With that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and read our text beginning in verse 1. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. All right, this is the scene. It's a, a picture, if you will, of hurting humanity. That's where our story unfolds and where it begins. The second verse identifies the location of this miracle as the pool of Bethesda. 
By the way, this is one of the places we get to visit on our tours of Israel. And it's in the northeastern corner of the old city. And today there's this beautiful church there with wonderful acoustics called St. Anne's Church. And you can go down to this very location. We're going to be going next May. Just as a quick plug, you might want to get signed up for that trip. Now, the name Bethesda means place of mercy. It's a beautiful name. You know, places and names mean something. This, this name means place of mercy, but it's a bit of a misnomer because it was actually more of a place of misery with everyone who was paralyzed or blind, blind or crippled or lame camped out around it. And in that regard, I, I almost sense that this pool is a picture of all of us, like all of humanity. Let me explain. Here we are, camped out, if you will, on this rock called Earth. And we all have our issues. We all have our conditions. Some of us have physical issues. That was like the people at this pool. Others of us have emotional issues. Others of us have relational scars or issues. The only difference between us and, and maybe the people at this pool is we're perhaps a bit better at hiding our issues and theirs were out in the open where everyone could see them. The point is, I think we all suffer from one issue or another, and we all long for healing in those hidden re recesses of our hearts. Now, John goes on to tell us that all the reason, the reason that all these people were camped out around this particular pool is if you'll look down at verse 4. Some of your Bibles will have verse 4. For me, it's down in the footnotes of my Bible, and it tells me that some of the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 4. And so it put it down there. But in verse 4, it outlines this legend that had grown up around this pool, how every so often an angel would come and, and just kind of dip his toe and swirl around the waters and cause them to bubble up. And as the legend went, the first person in the water after they had been stirred up by this angel would be healed of whatever ailment or disease they had. Now, did this actually happen? We can't say for sure, but I can say it doesn't sound very much like our God to orchestrate kind of this cruel, crippled race where you have all of these people who can't walk, kind of army crawling their way to get in the pool and be the first one in. But obviously, something happened at some point. Because here you have this great multitude, is what John says. And they're all camped out. And they're all desperate for healing. In verse 5, John identifies one man, an individual who had been there for 38 years. Now, he zooms in the camera, and I want to take just a moment to imagine what my life might have been like for this guy. Every day of his life would have been spent on a mat that was four feet long by about two feet wide. John doesn't tell us how he came to be in this condition, but he does tell us how long he had been there. It was 38 years. Now, how many of you have trouble waiting 38 seconds for your popcorn to pop in the microwave? And here this guy is waiting 38 years, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Maybe when he first got there, he had high hopes. And he thought, hey, it's just a matter of time. My day will come. But then it didn't. 
And the years turned into decades. Perhaps he even saw others walk away healed, but his day never came. And by the time Jesus showed up, nearly four decades had passed. I did the math. 365 days a year times 38 years equals almost 14,000 days. The point is, certainly by this point, whatever hopes he had of being healed, those had all vanished. And he had resigned himself to the fact that things weren't ever going to change. And maybe you're here tonight and you resonate with his story because you've been waiting for your miracle. You've been waiting for something to happen. You've been waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to answer a prayer, waiting for God to bring change in an area of your life, waiting for God to bring healing to your body or to your marriage or restoration, but it hasn't happened. And because of that, man, you're just starting to lose hope. You see other people coming to this pool, and they walk away healed. And you think, just like the guy in our story, when's it going to be my turn? You see, when the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into years, the harder it becomes to hold on to hope. But everything was about to change for this guy, because verse 6 tells us that Jesus saw him lying there, and he walked right up to him. I love that. I love what that says about our Lord. That of all the people surrounding the pool that day, Jesus walked right up to the guy who had been in this place perhaps longer than anyone else. I imagine this was the kind of place that most other people tried to avoid, but not Jesus. When he arrived in Jerusalem for this feast, he headed straight for the place with all of the helpless, hurting, broken people. And then he walked right up to the guy with the hardest problem. And it says Jesus saw him. He saw him. Now, people with disabilities often talk about how they feel invisible to everyone else around them. It's not just that people look down on them or people pity them, but oftentimes they just say, I just feel invisible, like people look right through me. And and I can't help but wonder if the guy in our story was used to people looking past him or through him. And yet it caught his attention because when Jesus' eyes landed on his, they lingered. Now, there are several different Greek words that, that John could have used to describe Jesus as he looks at this man and as he sees him. One of those words describes a passing glance. Other words describe an intent gaze. I'll, get, I'll leave you to guess which word John uses. <laughs> it's the Greek word idon. And it's a word that means to pause, to focus on, and to pay attention to. Jesus didn't just glance at him, but he saw him. He saw his past. He saw his hurts. He saw his history. He saw his pain. And he saw his soul. And there are so many of us who go through this life feeling like we're just another face in the crowd, nobody worth noticing and nobody special. And this story is here to remind us that that is not at all the case. Jesus doesn't just see a crowd. We're a big crowd here tonight. But Jesus doesn't see a crowd. He sees individuals. He knows everyone in here by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. The Bible talks about how he catches our tears in a bottle. He sees your hurts. 
He knows your story. He knows your past. And he's walking right towards you tonight, just like he walked up to the guy in our story. And you say, well, maybe he's walking up to them or them, but not me. And the thing about our Lord is is because he's omnipresent, he can individually walk up to each and every person simultaneously in the room tonight. So you can have your own experience with Jesus tonight if you're open to it. And then I want you to notice in verse 7 the question that or at the end of verse 6, where Jesus asks this question. He says, do you want to get well? Now, that's a curious question. I mean, a rather funny question, right? Uh, To ask a guy who's been crippled, who's been camped out next to a pool with supposed healing powers for 38 years, hey, so uh, did you want to get healed? You know, there is this whole category of questions that don't need to be asked. Right now, the car company Hyundai They're running a marketing campaign that calls on people to question everything. And they they dive into some of these funnier or silly questions, questions that uh, include, why does quicksand work so slowly? Or why do they call it a funny bone? I mean, you ever hit it? There's nothing funny about it. Or if a vegetarian, this was my favorite, if a vegetarian eats an animal cracker, are they still a vegetarian? You know, just questions that belong in that kind of funny category don't need to be asked. This kind of feels like one of those. But maybe the answer isn't as obvious as it would seem. You see, not everyone who's trapped really wants to be set free. Did you know that? See, there are some people who are perfectly content to stay stuck right in the middle of their mess, even if it's ruining their lives. We looked at the scripture a few weeks ago as we were studying John chapter 3, and John, he gives some illumination as to why people would rather stay in a, a horrible situation rather than step into the light and be free. And this is what he said. This is John 3.19. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It's in our notes. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. John says the real reason that people would rather stay stuck is because they love their sin. And as terrible as things are, sometimes we can get stuck in our own brokenness. Maybe you've been there. You might hate it, but at least it's familiar. But the bottom line is you'll never change what you're willing to tolerate. Did you know that? As long as you're willing to put up with it, the problem won't go away. So maybe Jesus' question is as relevant to us tonight as it was to him back then. He says, do you really want to be made well? To the one crippled by past hurts, he says, do you want to be healed? To the one chained by secret addictions, Jesus says, do you really want to be loosed? To the one battling secret sin, he says, do you really want to overcome? To all of us who need his healing touch tonight, Jesus says, do you want to be made well? In verse 7, the the guy gives Jesus his response. He says, I don't have anybody to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, there's somebody else. He gets ahead of me. It's not my fault. And I want you to notice how instead of answering Jesus' question, he just jumps straight to all the excuses why he couldn't get to the water. And this is where the guy starts to get in the way of the miracle that Jesus is trying to bring to him. 
He basically tells Jesus, yeah, I want to be healed, but let me tell you why it won't work, why that's not an option for me. And he points to other people. He blames his circumstances. He plays the victim card, and he throws out all of these reasons or excuses as to why he'll never get healed. He just talks about his issues. These are my issues. These are the things that are keeping me from my healing. I got issues, man. By the way, isn't it interesting that we never learn this guy's name, but we know all about his issues, right? A common thread through the Gospel of John. We learned last week about the woman at the well. We know about her issues. She had had five husbands. She was shacked up with a guy that she wasn't married to. We know her issues, but we don't know her name. Fast forward to John chapter 8, we have the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know her name, but we know about her issues. In John 9, we're introduced to a man who was born blind. We don't know his name, but we know all about his issue. And the same thing happens to us. It's so easy to get wrapped up into your issues to the point where they become your whole identity. And you can see this play out in the way that we talk. We say things like, well, it's, it's not my fault. It's, it's my boss's fault, or it's my ex's fault, or it's my parents' fault. That's why I'm stuck with these issues. That's why I can't be fully alive. If such and such bad thing didn't happen to me when I was little, then I wouldn't be in this state stuck forever on the edge of my healing. And listen, I'm not trying to downplay or minimize in any way the, the things that have happened to you. Those things are real, and they're traumatic. They're real issues. They're legitimate. What I'm here to suggest is that whatever has happened to you in your life has been trumped by the greater fact of what Jesus has done for you. And because of what Jesus did for you at Calvary's cross, it releases healing. It releases the opportunity. It releases the potential for healing to flow into your heart. And what Jesus has done for you is over and above and supersedes whatever life has dealt to you. That's the facts. And as much as we hate to admit, I think we need to be honest here and admit that the biggest obstacle standing between us and the miracle we desire oftentimes is us. And some of us are limiting or blocking or stiff-arming or resisting the work that God wants to do in our lives. So here's our next point. Stop limiting the limitless God. Isn't that a fun phrase? How do you limit a limitless God? Well, one of the ways we limit God is through our unbelief. I don't think I can be healed. That's not an option. Another way that we limit him is when we're disobedient. We also limit God when we fail to trust his promises. We can also hinder the work that God longs to do in our lives by putting barriers and parameters around how and when and where and with whom he's allowed to work in our lives. By, by the way, that's kind of what the guy in our story was doing. Well, if I mean, these people would get me to the water and I was the first one and then I would accept healing. But he's putting all of these parameters around Jesus and how he can be healed. Listen to this verse from Psalm 78, 41 about Israel. It says this, and, and let's read this together out loud. It says, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited the Holy One 
of Israel. What a, what a tragic and sad commentary that is. I mean, the, the nation of Israel essentially put a governor on God. You know what a governor is? It's a thing. Your car could go faster, but they put a governor on it so that it can only go so fast. It was like there was more that God wanted to do in his people, through his people, for his people, but he couldn't, couldn't because they were limiting him. And so today, what I want to encourage you to do is it's time to take the limiter off of our God. Who is our God? This is how we take the limiter off, by reminding ourselves who our God is, how big he is, how great he is, how awesome he is. He is the ocean parter. He is the way maker. He is the mountain mover. He is the wonder worker. He is the death defeater. He is mighty to save. And he is here because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Somebody say hallelujah and give him praise. (laughs) So for anyone in here who came in tonight thinking that change wasn't possible, maybe that forgiveness wasn't available, or that victory wasn't an option. I'm here to remind you that nothing is impossible with our God. I don't care how bad your situation looks or seems, and I don't care how long it's gone on. If Jesus walks into your story, he can change it in the moment. See, the guy in our story made a huge critical mistake. He kept thinking that he needed to get to the water. But guess what? You don't need to get to the healing water when the living water has walked right up to you. And isn't that what happened? Jesus is the living water, and he walked up to this guy. And so he just, I love what he does in verse 8. He ignores his excuses. He confronts the man, and he issues three commands. Let's look at those together. He says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Three commands to obey. And by the way, the guy's healing, his miracle hinged on his response to the commands that he had just heard. The first command Jesus gave him was stand up. I think it's worth pointing out the obvious here that what Jesus told him to do was impossible. Oftentimes, Jesus asks us to do things that are impossible for us. Jesus was always doing that with people. He told a man with a withered hand to stretch forth his hand. He called Peter to hop out of a boat and walk on water. He told his disciples to take the few loaves of bread and the couple of fish that they had in their hands and to pass them out to a multitude of thousands. Jesus is going to ask you to do some impossible things, things that you feel like are beyond your capability. But let me just remind you that the commandment of God is the enablement of God. And if he calls you to it, he'll give you the authority and the power to walk in it. And that's where we have to make the response, right? Because just like the guy in our story, we have to decide what are we going to do? Are we going to respond by faith? Or are we going to shrink back in fear? Thankfully, this guy decides to obey. And for the first time in 40 years, he stands to his feet, which leads us to the second thing, the second command that Jesus gives him, which is this, pick up your mat. Pick up your mat. Now, the reason Jesus said this was because, well, there's really two reasons, but I'll focus on this one for right now. He didn't want to give the guy anything to come back to. He didn't say... Try it out for a while. See how you like walking, and maybe if it's not your thing, 
you can come back to your mat, right? Because if you leave something somewhere, we all know that's the universal sign that you're coming back. In our family, we have very strict rules about this, and if I leave any article of my clothing or any food item on any chair or any couch cushion, that's my spot. And it worked the same way back then. The mat on the ground signified that you were coming back by picking it up. He's saying, I'm done. I'm moving forward. I'm stepping into a whole new life. That was the second command that Jesus gave him. And then the third command he gave him was to walk. And I love this one for several reasons. Number one, I love it for its simplicity. When you think about walking, it doesn't take a whole lot of thought if you're over the age of three. It's a metaphor that's often used throughout scriptures to describe what God wants our relationship with him to be like. It says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. And there's just something so beautiful and simple about that picture. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's as natural as breathing. And that's what God intends our life in Christ to look like. As we inch our way towards the Lord, we look more and more like the Lord, and we walk away from bad habits, and we walk in fellowship with the Lord, and we get to know him. It's an intimate thing. Stride for stride, step for step, learning to walk with Jesus, depending on him, trusting in him, allowing him to guide your every step, not getting too far in front of him, not lagging too far behind, but just walking with Jesus. That's what he's invited you into this evening. And so verse 9, at once the man was cured. At once. 38 years. Juxtapose that phrase with this phrase, at once. Tonight could be your at once. He was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. We can picture this moment. It's just so powerful. As, as he sits there, he weighs Jesus' words, and he thinks to himself, you know, what have I got to lose? So he puts his hands down, and he braces himself, and he pushes up, and, and muscles and bones and tendons and ligaments that had long since atrophied and calcified and died, regenerated spontaneously and miraculously. And he stands up to his feet, and he thinks, ha ha, I'm standing. And then maybe he does a little dance, and he turns around, and he's like, look at me. And now he's causing a scene, and he's running around in circles, and everybody's like, oh my gosh. And meanwhile, Jesus sneaks off. And verse 9, the second half goes on to say, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man, because obviously it caused a commotion, and the religious leaders get involved, and they say to him, who, who healed you? It's the Sabbath, and this, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they said to him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now later, Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. We'll stop there. Talk about missing the point. <laughs> I mean, here's the point. The guy's healed. And here's the religious leaders over here. Hey, what are you doing carrying your mat? They were blinded 
to a glorious miracle because they were focused on the wrong thing. And by the way, let's just back up for a moment here. I want to draw your attention to the words Jesus speaks to the guy after he heals him. He says, now stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. That's an interesting choice of words for Jesus. We don't read here about the man becoming a believer in Jesus or following Jesus or professing his faith in Jesus. And there is some indication in the way that Jesus structures his words that would seem to suggest that there was a connection between the man's condition and his lifestyle of sin. And there is some suffering that comes to us as a result of sin, and we can't ignore that. So Jesus heals him. He reverses the curse, but he says, hey, you better stop sinning or something far worse is going to happen to you. What could be worse than 38 years without being able to walk? How about an eternity spent separated from a loving God? And so this guy finds out that it's Jesus. Instead of falling on his knees and glorifying him, he runs back to the religious leaders and tattles on Jesus. Wow. And if if he didn't get saved, how tragic to experience the healing, miraculous touch of Jesus on your body and yet miss the point of the miracle and not allow it to work its way from your head down into your heart so your soul gets saved. And some of you can have wonderful experiences. You can receive the healing touch of Jesus in your life and even witness miracles. But the whole point is that it would lead you to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. That's always the issue. But now returning here to the The Pharisees, the religious leaders who just completely missed the point, they're focused on the mat. Why were they so focused on the mat? Well, it was the Sabbath, and these guys were like professional rule keepers. They were like the hall monitors of the first century, like just love to write tickets to everybody for everything kind of people, you know? They're just sin sniffers, you know, those kinds of people. And so they had this law, and it was a good law. It was from the Lord. Honor the Sabbath. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. And they're like, that's a good rule. But we got to enforce that rule. What does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? And so they came up with all of these rules and all of these lists, books and books, chapters and chapters about what constituted work, what was and what was not allowed on the Sabbath. And for instance, you weren't allowed to put in false teeth on the Sabbath because that was work. Ladies weren't allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath for fear that they might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be work. You weren't even allowed to bathe on the Sabbath for the fear that you might splash water onto the ground and that might cause a little bit of dirt that was in your bathroom floor to get picked up and cleaned up and that's washing the floor, which is work. So no bathing on the Sabbath. So everybody's got to smell bad on the Sabbath. And so they had layer upon layer and rule upon rule. And Jesus wants to point out the ludicrousy of their rules. He wants to point out that they've missed the point. You're focused on this or that, and you're missing out on this incredible miracle. And so in a way, Jesus is picking a fight with the religious establishment of the day. They'd taken God's command to rest and perverted it and twisted it by their own rules to the point where they completely destroyed its original intent and purpose. And in the end, what we have here are a group of people and an individual who almost missed out on a miracle, were blind to a miracle, and may have missed out on the greatest miracle of all. 
Some of them missed out because they were focused on the wrong thing. The guy missed out almost because he thought that healing wasn't an option for him. And ultimately, he might have missed out because he didn't allow Jesus to do the deeper work in his heart. And so my prayer for us this evening is that we wouldn't miss out on our miracle. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It's so beautiful and it's relevant and it's timely. And I believe that you're here and you're, you're standing in front of each person because you're a personal God. You don't just minister to multitudes, but you're personally invested in individual stories and lives. You took the time to learn about his condition. You take the time to learn about us. You know us inside and out. And Jesus, you stand in front of us tonight, and you're asking, do you want to be made well? And maybe you're here, and you're like, yeah, but I do kind of. And it's time for you to do some real soul searching tonight, because Jesus is here, and he wants to bring healing. He wants to bring wholeness. He's a God that gives beauty for ashes, peace for despair, gladness for mourning, life for death, riches for rags, glory for guilt, sweetness for shame, grace for grime. You give him your sin, he'll give you his spirit. But he asks, do you want to be made well? Lord, we want to be made well. We want to be healed. We want to be whole. We don't want to walk with a limp, partially healed. We want to be wholly healed, wholly surrendered, wholly given over to you. If that's the desire of your heart, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. And you can just respond in faith by saying after me out loud, just say, dear Jesus. Make me whole. I want you. You are my healing. You are my wholeness. You are my life. You are my all in all. I choose you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.